0: Thanks to Pacifica member radio stations for airing beyond your front door, including KXCR, KXCJ, KORC, KPRP, KOYS Pacific Northwest Radio, KSVR, KCIW, and other Pacifica member stations. And thanks to local band Jumpin' the Rails for their rendition of Smith Chapel, the theme song used on this show. And thanks again to all of you for tuning in. I hope you have a great week and get some time beyond your front door.
1: On ninety point seven FM and streaming on the web at KBOO.FM.
2: Listen to
0: Black Book Talk at KBOO FM every first
2: Thursday from eleven thirty to noon. Co-hosts O.B. Hill, Patricia Welch, and Emma Jackson-Ford discuss African-American
0: authors and books. That's Black Book Talk every first Thursday from 1130 to noon on KBOOFM.
2: to Lucas Focus, a weekly conversation about our place on the planet, every Monday morning at 10 on KBOO Community Radio. Each week, host Barbara Bernstein talks with local, regional and national experts, activists and policymakers about climate change, river protection, the transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy, salmon restoration, forest management and all the other things that are critical to protect our planet. That's every Monday at 10 a.m. on your community radio station KBOO.
0: KBOO This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith.
2: The climate is broken. Are your savings helping the mad new expansion of fossil fuels? From RAN, Dr. April Merlot names big banks expanding oil, gas, and coal from the Arctic to the Amazon. Where does that lead? From London, broadcaster, author, and science journalist Gaia Vince breaks boundaries in her new book, Nomad Century, How to Survive the Climate Upheaval. I'm Alex Smith. Welcome to Radio EcoShock. What are the coming decades about? Did you picture a nomad century? Award-winning science journalist, broadcaster, and author Gaia Vince does. In a book stuffed with science and investigation, Gaia says warming and climate disruption will force at least a billion humans to find new homes. They are already on the move. Is it futile to resist? Gaia Vince is published by the BBC, The Guardian, New Scientist, and more. She produces science documentaries for radio and television. Her book Adventures in the Anthropocene won the Royal Society Prize for Science Books. And now we have the new one, Nomad Century, How to Survive the Climate Upheaval. From the UK, Gaia Vince, welcome to Radio EcoShock.
1: Thanks, Alex. It's, it's great to join you.
2: What brought you to this vision of vast numbers of humans on the move?
1: I've been uh, following climate change for over a decade now. In fact, environmental change generally. And as part of my research, looking at this, I've travelled widely around the world, mainly the global south. And I've already seen, with my own eyes, quite a lot of climate migration. Whether it's villages in the Andes that um, have had to leave and move to the cities, move to Lima or La Paz, because their villages have been experiencing drought year after year after year, and their livelihoods have gone in terms of their agricultural livelihoods. Glaciers that have previously fed their fields have melted and disappeared. And there are these enlarging slum housing, I guess, shanty towns built um, around cities from Dakar in Bangladesh to uh, Mumbai to you know, all across the world of people who have been forced to move. And I've also seen it in the rich world. You know, I'm half Australian, so I've seen my own family members and and friends have to move because of bushfires across Australia or um, terrible floods that have uh, made them homeless and then living in temporary housing or, or or they've had to just completely relocate. And I've also got friends in the U.S. Um, That have had to move because of fire or flood so it's not a problem that is uh, limited only to poorer countries it it is happening everywhere but what we're going to see is this vast wave across the tropics where um, in the coming decades conditions will simply be too extreme for people and that's where the majority of the migration is going to be coming from.
2: There has been a huge heat wave recently across Asia. Just last week, 11 people at a festival outside Mumbai, India, suffered heat strokes.
1: I mean, it's appalling, and schools have been closed. Buenos Aires has just come out of a heat wave. Uh, Europe, th- there have been forest fires on the border of France and Spain in March, you know, and this is the northern hemisphere where we don't expect spring conditions to have ended until, you know, at least May.
2: So, in your research, what parts of the world are likely to become uninhabitable if the world warms to three degrees and beyond?
1: Well, so at the moment, if you look at just one metric, if you look at heat, at the moment, about 1% of the Earth's land surface is classed as uninhabitable due due to heat. But by 2070, we expect some 20% of uh, the Earth's land surface to be uninhabitable due to heat. And that is home currently to about a third of the world's population so you know we're we're currently home to about eight billion people after mid-century we we will be looking at nine perhaps as much as 10 billion so we're looking at about three billion people living in places that are likely to be uninhabitable due to heat but heat is just one of the um, problems one of what i call the four horsemen of the anthropocene so it's heat fire Flood and drought; these are the these are the the extreme conditions that uh, affect, that really impact livability. They they um, hurt property, infrastructure. They um, can ruin livelihoods, and they can be fatal for people. So we're seeing, um, when we look at the models of the planet as we heat over the century, we're going to see this swayed around the tropics. So it, it goes as far south as um, Australia and Patagonia across the whole of the African continent and up in the US, up as near to the Great Lakes um, in Europe, up certainly into Spain and, and uh, southern France and um, across the very populated places of Asia, the whole of most of India and um, China. And we're also, of course, coastlines are going to be affected by um, coastal erosion, much greater storm surges. Uh, We're going to see river deltas, the homes of some of the world's most populous, biggest cities, all affected there is nowhere on earth that is going to be unaffected by these conditions you know everyone is going to have some effects but further north the far north those latitudes are going to be experiencing lesser impacts um, that are more adaptable so we will all have to adapt to the new conditions we need to start adapting now and it
2: will be much more possible in the far north and then in the future, you predict cities in the cooler global north will compete to attract migrants, and that runs against all the rhetoric we hear these days. Why would this happen?
1: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The narrative around migration is grown so toxic that um, a lot of nations are you know, they're imposing all sorts of border restrictions to keep people out, but that's actually relatively recent. Um, until until just very recent decades, most countries were more concerned with trying to keep people in and try and attract more people. You know, um, there were all sorts of schemes to get post-war to get people um, from the former colonies and empire of uh, European nations to come and help rebuild after the war. Australia had a system of called 10 pound ponds to try and encourage people over Um, The United States was also trying to encourage people to come. um, And that's been the case throughout history, really, um, because economic productivity really depends on increasing that labor force. And as we move through the century, what we are seeing is already this demographic crisis really hitting certainly uh, Europe, but also many other countries from Japan to China to um, the United States, where People are simply not having enough babies to support an aging population. that puts huge strain on the economies of these nations, and the way to uh, solve that labor problem is through immigration. so we are going to have to see a shift and and you can already see you know even the most populist governments who are, with one hand are uh, turning back people they're pushing up walls they're um, sending people to rwanda or whatever the latest policy is with the other hand they're trying desperately to bring people in because there are labor shortages and everything from hospitality to health care to uh, truck drivers to farm labor i mean really across the board people are needed and, and more flexible borders for movements of labor just increase the economy i mean Some economists think that if we took away all borders completely, the global
2: economy would um, at least double, if not treble, overnight. But if you go before the public, or a politician does, saying we need open borders, you risk being shouted down. It seems impossible open borders will be welcomed by any developed country in the future. Who agrees with you?
1: I'm not necessarily calling for open borders, but I am calling for um, a completely different attitude and different policy or different way of managing our borders and and migration patterns. Because, you know, some nations are already well aware of that. If you look at Canada, Canada has plans to um, treble its population over the coming decades, you know, and it has a very different policy. But what we have had over recent decades has been this very pervasive very strong anti-migrant narrative this very nationalistic narrative across many nations and it hasn't been countered. but it's perfectly possible to counter that and to change people's attitudes and to explain and extol the very many evidence-based ways that migration that immigration actually improves economies, improves societies, and can really help with many of the huge challenges that we face over the coming decades. I mean, people are coming whether we like it or not. So it's much better to have uh, policies that work with that reality and and try and manage what's coming rather than uh, pretending that and making making, uh, announcements that we're going to you know get immigration numbers down or or um, or expel loads of people when it's just not going to happen so you know that we've tried that many governments have tried that, and it doesn't work. But when you say that people won't won't like immigration, greater immigration, well, you know I would challenge that actually because despite this very strong pervasive anti migrant narrative led by politicians and, and trumpeted by many, of the, uh, by many uh, of the media, we have got evidence um, through many surveys that the general population is not nearly as xenophobic as governments would like. I mean, if you take my country, Britain, we've just had, well, not just anymore, but we've had a very, very toxic uh, Brexit debate driven largely on the back of uh, this issue of immigration and this notion of, I guess, Britain for Britons. But despite that, if you look at any of the surveys, people are actually more positive about immigration than they were before. They, they are year on year becoming much more positive and much they are much more pro all sorts of migrant and immigration questions when they're, when they're asked, for instance, should immigrants be treated second class when it comes to uh, job allocation? The answer is no for pretty much everyone. Do you think we need to reduce immigration? The answer is no. Do you think we should increase immigration? The answer is yes for for the majority polls um, across the country. Now, you wouldn't know that if you looked at our... You know our actual uh, official government policy, which is more and more draconian um, every month on immigration, but the actual population is far less xenophobic, and I think governments need to be a bit more aware of that and be a bit braver. And um, there's a lot of timidity among um, leaders of all parties, and even broaching the subject of immigration because people are so nervous about being unpopular. But The evidence shows that if you uh explain people movement and labor movement in a more positive way, you know it doesn't have to be that way.
2: <laughs> yes, I remember in two thousand and eight, British scientist and inventor James Lovelock shocked many when he said Britain will become a life raft those were his words for climate refugees. He said the u k should start building schools and hospitals now to be ready for the influx. Guy Vince, what do you think?
1: I didn't know that. I mean, it's very present. He was a very, very wise man. I met him a few times, and um, that's absolutely true. You know, Britain happens to be, certainly the north, um, the southeast is going to be and is already being very heavily affected by um, drought. We've already experienced some terrible heat waves um, and floods in other places. But the north, if you look at Scotland, for example... Sea level rise will not be a problem because Scotland is still rebounding from the last ice age. Um, after being pressed down so heavily by ice sheets, it's still rising, and it's rising faster than sea level is rising. Um, it's actually going to be one of the uh, beneficiaries of many of the climate impacts. It's going to have longer growing seasons. Heating bills won't be so much during uh, during the winter time. So there are places in the north which are, which are much more able um, and will be much more livable um, into the coming decades. They will be the strategic centers, you know, as, as we go through this, this very challenging century of upheaval.
2: You point out humans are fleeing from the Holocene environment that we evolved into, willy-nilly into a hotter, more extreme Anthropocene age, then comes a remarkable claim, quote, We're all finding our feet in the Anthropocene, and no one has better claim than anyone else to the habitable 21st century landscapes, end quote. Do you mean I have no claim to my homeland of Canada?
1: Well, you know, what do you base that on? What do you base your claim on? I, th- I think we need to start genuinely rethinking this. you know we are a mammal species we're a tropical ache that has dispersed over um, a couple of hundred thousand years across well actually the dispersal was much more recent across the entire planet. you know we gain our our rights to our our square footage of land through accident of birth, and I think that when we collectively as humanity and it isn't entirely collectively of course it's uh, the richer countries have had much more of a role than poorer countries but when we collectively make parts of our planet uninhabitable we must also collectively use the habitable bits to accommodate the rest of our species you know we work as a network the only reason that you can be sedentary in your little space in canada or that i can be fairly sedentary in my few meters of London is because everything that I need, everything I eat, all the resources, all the things, um, all my culture, everything is brought to me and it's brought to me collectively from around the globe. You know, I have potatoes from Peru for lunch, I uh, have um, beans from uh, Syria, you know, I, I, everything I have, everything I own has come through this network of humanity from across the globe um, and by strangers who themselves are moving around, they are doing the migration and the, and the secondary migrations of our stuff have carried them all there. So I don't think that I can claim really any more right to um, a habitable land than anyone else. We need to stop this, what I think really is a sort of almost a narcissistic entitlement to a space and to a, a lifestyle and a livelihood which, which, you know, we need to consider the rest of humanity because we don't exist alone, we don't do anything alone. We, we are part of a human ecosystem and we are part of a biosphere, we're part of a planetary ecosystem and we rely on that, so cutting our own nose off to spite our face is foolish, of course, but also, it's, you know, this is a, humanity is a collective pursuit, and we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility for people that we don't know, that are far away, but also for, for where they can live, for what they can drink. You know, I think the last COP um, that was held in November, there was a recognition that rich countries should pay poor countries for the losses and damages they've experienced and they are experiencing and will experience for climate change. Well, part of that loss and damage includes the very land that they live on and what they call home and how they make their food and their living. And, you know, if that disappears, well, we have a responsibility as, as a humanity, as a, as a species to help provide that for them elsewhere. This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org. No sign-up, just the latest info, free for all. ecoshock.org.
2: You are tuned to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. From the UK, our guest is author and broadcaster Gaia Vince. We're talking about her book, Nomad Century, How to Survive the Climate Upheaval. You write about Spain and saying that from 2000 to 2009, they added 6 million immigrants, and yet we haven't seen much about anti-immigrant protests or politics in Spain. Why not?
1: I think there's been some really interesting experiments um, in different countries. You know, everybody is trying different ways to, to deal with this issue of human movements and how to accommodate them. And I, there are parts of Spain that have tried You know, really hard new ways, new types of inclusivity, and I write in my book about Parla, which is a part, which is a, it's a sort of a suburb, I suppose, of of Madrid. It's it's outside Madrid, uh, where they decided to take a new tactic with immigration, and they they granted full citizenship. They really helped with inclusivity. They built housing that was decent and that was near to facilities with. Um, Improved transport links so people had ways and means. You know, if you, if you help people um, to help themselves, if you give them the agency, if you give them the uh, legal ability to work and the agency to have citizenship and enough money that they can then form their own networks and they can become their own type of entrepreneur, these people repay the state more than, far more than uh, the initial input through taxes, through um, the education of their children through um, all the services and and social benefits and cultural benefits that new citizens bring. And and what was found there is this, because these people um, had, basically they had self-respect as citizens, they felt themselves to be Spanish and the um, existing Spanish population regarded them and treated them as new Spanish people. So they were not sort of segregated into um, ghettos of migrants, which happens frequently in in other cities where immigrants are sort of all housed in a block on the outskirts and it's really degraded and they're not allowed to work and they're not, you know, they're they're given an absolutely tiny stipend and it's, it's very impoverishing. These people felt like, they felt Spanish, they felt like citizens. And when the economic crisis hit, While other immigrant areas um, in France and Germany and and other places experienced a lot of unrest among, um, you know, migrant populations who experienced incredible poverty at the time. The ones in parlor in spain did not they did not um they also experienced poverty but you know they got through it without protest and without conflict with the you know there wasn't this rise of racism there wasn't this rise of conflict at all within the society it held together and they helped each other and i think that is really a lesson social you know when we talk about immigration working and being managed we need to talk about first of all the need for financial investment you know ensuring that people do have access to housing to infrastructure to um health and education services and and everything that um that people need as citizens Um, and that's you know that's a problem when many governments are failing to provide that for their existing population this is a policy failure that's that's what's happening so So that initial financial investment needs to be made, but just as important is the social investment that investment in true inclusivity that accepts that people coming are not lesser, they're not aliens, they are new citizens, they are part of the city of tomorrow they are their children and your children are the the generation that makes up the the future of your country and and I think that, that what we're often talking about, really, the, the elephant in the room, is, is challenging racism because many of the people coming um, are coming from tropical countries where they have more melanated skin than many of um, host populations in the northern in the northern hemisphere, far north, especially. So we're talking about um, more darker skinned people moving into more homogeneously white areas and there is this very uncomfortable ethno nationalism that's been building over um, recent um, years which which is this narrative that there is um, a pure I don't know Swede or a pure um, German or a pure whatever Czech person and this is this is rubbish every single, population genetics study shows that we are completely mixed up we are from everywhere we were until very recently migrants and you can see that we were all migrants you can see that in our dna there isn't any pure ethnically ethnically pure race that really belongs to a place that's just not true biologically and um and we need to challenge that
2: we're going to need international planning does the United Nations have a plan for this mass migration under climate change
1: well I mean there has been just in the last few months movements towards um, there is this kind of compact compact on migration which was uh, which was an attempt to look at this uh, in 2018 but it's not legally binding it's Many countries either refused to sign or um, abstained. They either re- objected or abstained to signing this compact. So it's very much kind of an intention to start thinking about it and maybe do something at some point in the future. But, you know, this can't wait. We really do need something. We need, I think, a new UN um, agency, but with teeth to actually act because we we have a completely broken immigration system globally, and it is a global issue, because people are moving not just within nations, but across borders and across regions. And at the moment, much of this um, is very dangerous. It's not at all facilitated, and um, because of the danger, huge sums are being paid to uh, all sorts of criminal gangs people are dying needlessly and they're also being held in you know refugee camps or um in some sort of enclosure i mean they're basically prisons they can't get on with their lives they're not you know this is not a way to help um, host societies or society countries of origin or the migrants themselves everybody loses um in this game and we could do so much better you know people move to where there's work you know that's where they're trying to move unless they unless they are fleeing instantly an extreme catastrophe um, an evacuation scenario most people are migrating in search of a better life in search of work and they're migrating to where the work is there is a need for this labor and you know we're not matching these um at all so it, it damages economies it damages societies and it damages families people
2: It seems absurd you and I are talking about displacement, possibly of billions of people, due to human-made global heating, which we could have avoided. But here we are. Are you finding many people ready for this conversation?
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, I've had a sort of mixed reaction. Some people don't want to talk about it. They, you know, they don't want to talk or even think about the climate emergency that we're facing this catastrophe where you know we're talking about parts of the world significant parts of the world home to most of the world's population being unlivable for months of the year within a few decades i mean this is really serious you know there are parts of the world that are already increasingly unlivable farmers are working at night with head torches because they can't go out during the day that is not alive but you know people are going to be fleeing and So the responses have been kind of stick my fingers in my ears and cover my eyes, you know, uh, or hostility to the idea of migration and to the idea of climate change. But that is, I have to say, as far as I'm aware, a very small minority view, actually. The majority of people are relieved someone is actually talking about this now because this really is, you know, it is a growing crisis in the making. You know, we we know about climate change. We know that, you know, countries are on fire, they're flooded. I mean, the Miami newspapers last week were leading with huge stories about about the floods taking over the cities, and yet people are still investing there. We need to wake up to the reality.
2: Gaia Vince, what are you working on next?
1: Oh, (laughs) well this is for me a very important issue looking at looking at the ecological change that we're experiencing and, and sort of documenting it so i'm, I'm working on a, um, a book about to try and explain our place in the biosphere. for children i'm trying to get my head around making people understand or, Trying to help people understand what we're facing and, and understand myself as well, because it's you know it's conceptually difficult what we're going through. It is, an, it is an enormous upheaval this century, and it's something that you know humans haven't really experienced before.
2: Where are the best places for listeners to keep up with your work?
1: Well, I'm on Twitter briefly until <laughs> until uh, you know that becomes impossible. So, and I have a website, wanderinggaia.com, and on Twitter, I'm wanderinggaia.
2: Check out that site. Uh, From the UK, we've been speaking with author and broadcaster Gaia Vince about her book, Nomad Century, How to Survive the Climate Upheaval. You can find out more in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Gaia, thank you for sharing your time and your vision with our listeners.
1: It's my great pleasure, Alex.
2: I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Coming up, is your bank funding a wrecked climate for you and your family? Probably. April Merlot is next. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, EcoShock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. Net zero, blah, blah, blah. Actually, the world's biggest banks are funding more fossil fuels, not less. Projects to heat Earth beyond 2 degrees C are probably already on the drawing boards funded and underway. Spurred on by the biggest profits ever seen on this planet, this crazy fossil fuel bonanza spreads from the deep seabed through the Amazon jungle right into the far Arctic. Are your savings helping to kill a livable climate? You need to know. All the sad and sorry facts, naming names, is found in a new report called Banking on Climate Chaos, Fossil Fuel Finance Report, 2023. This comes from a consortium of nonprofit groups, The Watchers. Our guide is Dr. April Merlot, Director of Research for Rainforest Action Network. Merlot is the author of the 2015 book, American Empire and the Cultural Politics of Sweetness. From Massachusetts, April Merlot, welcome to Radio EcoShock.
0: Hi. Thanks for having me.
2: Right. So in 2022, the Big Five oil and gas companies reported over $200 billions in profits, the most ever, and that's just the Big Five. Are we living in a new fossil fuel boom, and what is driving it?
0: It really does look like we're living in a new fossil fuel boom. Certainly last year, one of the things that was driving it was the conflict in the Ukraine, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, really drove energy prices to all-time highs. And I think whenever there are big profits to be had, big corporations, those oil and gas companies, are happy to rush towards those profits. So we saw lots of companies that had proposals, particularly for liquefied natural gas, but for some other of the dirty, unconventional oil and gas sectors also Plans that they had kind of put on the shelves for a few years suddenly started dusting those off last year when when they started to see prices going a lot higher and really jumped on that moment to expand liquefied natural gas and other fossil fuels that we know we just can't, not only don't need, but really can't stand to extract and burn if we're going to stay within our climate goals.
2: Do you think the big banks and the fossil fuel companies know what happens if they go ahead with their expansion plans as far as the climate goes?
0: That's a hard question. We've got pretty good evidence that fossil fuel companies have known for a long time that burning fossil fuels increases concentrations of greenhouse gases and that those greenhouse gases are heating up the planet, and that's likely to make it unlivable for all of us. And the fact that we know that they've known that for a while makes me not particularly trust them. So, for example, we sometimes hear from banks that they want to fund their clients to transition away from fossil fuels and to take the lead on a decarbonized economy. And I don't share that trust in fossil fuel companies to be able to lead us towards a decarbonized future, given that they've brought us to where we are right now. Banks, I think, have a little bit better chance of uh, being taken seriously in their climate commitments. We have definitely seen some movement among banks, the biggest global banks in the last few years in terms of beginning to articulate some climate commitments. Those climate commitments continue to be not ambitious enough to meet the challenges of the moment, and in many cases, we see loopholes that allow them to continue financing fossil fuel companies and raking in the profits that we know can come from those, particularly in times of high geopolitical conflict, like last year with the conflict in
2: Ukraine. This expansion, as your report makes clear, is going on all over the globe, and my studio is near Vancouver, Canada, so let's start here. We know the Alberta tar sands are among the most carbon-intensive fuels in the world, and you should read that as the most polluting. Who is paying to keep them going and even fund new projects there?
0: I mean, unequivocally, the top Canadian banks are the ones that are behind the development of the tar sands financing, the key companies that are doing the work there. So we see something like 88% of financing for tar sands companies is coming from those um, main Canadian banks, RBC, Scotiabank, TD, those are the key actors financing the tar sands companies.
2: Yeah, but they're all in there. The Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, Bank, Bank of Montreal. Basically, that means everyone with a bank account in Canada is funding tar sands climate wrecking, whether we know it or not. Shouldn't the banks at least disclose their toxic investments? Maybe we should have to sign off. Yes, I agree. I will pay for the tar sands and the climate wreckage. <laughs> yeah,
0: unequivocally, I think that's spot on. And I think That's the sort of absolute minimum ask is for banks to be disclosing in a much more clear way exactly where their financing is going. And in addition to that, really setting much more ambitious kinds of targets for how they're going to decarbonize the portfolios that they've got. So we see RBC expanding their financing to major tar sands companies like Synovus and Unbridge, right? Those two companies got $20.8 billion um, in financing in 2022 from the 60 banks covered in our report. But again, the lead lead banks on that are just across the board, uh, Canadian banks.
2: So a bank practically unknown outside America is the fastest growing investor in climate doom. I'm talking about PNC Financial Services Group based in Pittsburgh. According to Wikipedia, PNC is on the list of the largest banks in the United States by assets and one of the largest banks by number of branches, deposits, and number of ATMs. So this is no Wall Street player or hedge fund. PNC is a consumer bank. It's using the money deposited by ordinary Americans to increase their fossil fuel financing by 77% from 2021 to 2022, according to your report. Some of our listeners may bank with PNC. What can they do about it?
0: This is a tricky question, partly because we don't see a whole lot of banks that are doing really, really well in terms of, of their climate commitments. So it's not exactly easy for me to say, just go shift your money to some other bank that's doing a lot better because we don't actually see any super great examples other than a couple of banks like Banque bon Postal in France. My advice is really to take seriously the mission that the banks have, which is to protect our money, to evaluate the risks into the future that might come up for our money, and to hold them accountable to that, right? To say, climate change is actually the most significant risk that's facing us in our current moment, and banks have an obligation, right, as a foundational institution in our society, as an institution that we all trust with our savings, with our retirement. I I think we have a a right to expect them to be taking rigorous account of of these kinds of risks and to make that known to them as customers, right, particularly for a bank like PNC that has such a strong consumer banking angle,
2: For me, the most frightening fossil fuel projects are appearing in the Arctic. Everybody knows the Arctic is warming four times faster than the rest of the planet. If that permafrost thaws and releases all the carbon stored there, we are literally toast. I thought there was some sort of unspoken agreement against exploiting the Arctic, but why? New projects like the Willow in North Alaska, they're happening right now. Why is that? Your guess is as good as
0: mine, why anybody thinks that's a good idea. I understand that in order to accomplish that, they even have to refreeze part of the permafrost because the drilling equipment um, needs to have the permafrost frozen, and the fossil fuels that are <laughs> it's extracting, the burning of them is making that permafrost thaw. So it just defies all logic as far as I am concerned. One of the things, and I, I'm glad you brought it up because we see loopholes in bank policies so banks are able to what really looks like greenwash um, through some of their policies we saw a number of banks over the last few years issue arctic exclusion policies to saying that they wouldn't that they wouldn't fund projects for oil and gas extraction in the arctic there are a couple of loopholes around that the first loophole is the one that we see with the willow project which is that those exclusion policies specify that they won't give Project finance. Well, project finance is a very specific kind of financial transaction where the proceeds are designated for a particular project. It gets written uh, into the balance sheet in a particular kind of way. The use of proceeds are really clearly articulated for that kind of finance. Unfortunately or fortunately, depending on which perspective you've got, only 4% of the transactions that we've got in our data set are project finance. So that means if a bank has made a policy and said we won't finance any projects in the Arctic, so only 4% of all of our deals are project finance and thus would be applicable to that. So instead, more typically what we see is oil and gas companies and coal companies too, instead of asking for project finance, they borrow money either through a loan or they issue a bond and the use of proceeds is designated as for general corporate purposes. So they don't specify a project that they're gonna apply that to. They just say, we're gonna use this for general corporate purposes. It's gonna go where it needs to go to facilitate our ongoing business. So that's the case with Willow. ConocoPhillips um, received financing from several of the major banks. Um, I think a syndicate of 12 banks lent money to ConocoPhillips in 2022 That financing was all with the use of proceeds designated as for general corporate purposes rather than project-specific finance. So that Arctic exclusion policies that some of those banks had didn't apply in that case. The other big loophole that we see with the Arctic is the geographic designation. So the few banks that do have policies will define the Arctic as the Arctic Circle So they draw that perfect circular line. Well, that's not really environmentally or politically or economically accurate. If you look at the definition of the Arctic that has been articulated by the Arctic Council, which is the international body that governs the Arctic, the geographic designation is is much broader. Um, It's much more complex, so a little bit harder to navigate, And we see a significant number of assets um, between 100 and 200 um, oil and gas extraction assets are located within the Arctic, outside of the Arctic Circle, but within that Arctic Council definition of the Arctic. So we see lots of loopholes like this in bank policies and just see this as a way that they're greenwashing, telling us on the one hand that they're addressing the climate crisis and on the other hand continuing to engage in business as usual with their fossil fuel clients.
2: Many of my listeners are concerned about the Amazon rainforest. We need to conserve that massive carbon sink and it's a pool of species found nowhere else on the planet and some people actually live there and they have rights. But there is more planet wrecking going on than just deforestation or fires. Tell us about the growing role of oil and gas extraction in the Amazon.
0: Really glad to be able to incorporate an assessment of bank financing for, in this case, 21 companies where we have evidence of direct involvement in oil and gas extraction in the Amazon biome in Brazil, Ecuador, Peru, and Colombia. So again, like with the Arctic, we use a more expansive, environmentally appropriate definition of the Amazon biome, so the Amazonian georeferenced socio-environmental information networks definition of the Amazon biome. If you use that definition as opposed to the vague and really not, kind of not precise definitions that uh, the few banks that do have Amazon policies use, um, lots of extraction going on there. So we see Santander, Spanish bank is the top financier of Amazon oil and gas extraction, but some US banks, JP Morgan Chase, City Bank of America also have exposure in that region. Um, we see some really pretty reckless projects happening. Geopark is a big driller in the Colombian Amazon, really has a bad track record of environmental and social issues and a Long history of resistance and fight from indigenous folks on the ground. Frontera, Gran Tierra, a couple other companies that are drilling. And we just know that in places like Amazonia, where um, there's a high level of biodiversity, and that biodiversity is standing in the way of extracting oil and gas. We see forest destruction, and we see companies just plowing over the rights of indigenous peoples, human rights, just tremendous pollution, and irreparable damage that happens as a result
2: of this. It's lawlessness in the jungle, and it's being funded by banks that we know and perhaps are invested in. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock, now broadcast by over 60 college and community radio stations in the United States, Canada, Britain, and Australia. I'm Alex Smith, saying, As we head into a crisis of energy, economy, and the environment, we need alternative voices more than ever. Please support your local nonprofit station. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest from the Rainforest Action Network is April Merlot, Director of Research. We're talking about the new Banking on Climate Chaos Fossil Fuel Finance Report 2023. April, as American coal miners go bankrupt and coal's share of electricity production falls in the U.S., we think of coal in the past tense. But what did your report find out about financing of coal in China and India?
1: Coal
0: financing does seem to be declining. Uh, The cost of capital for coal developers is increasing, which I think is a good sign in some ways because the more expensive it is to produce coal, the more likely folks are to stop producing it because it's reflecting the true cost to our society. We do see um, with coal power, the investments that continue to go in or the financing that continues to go in to support coal power, are predominantly coming from Chinese banks. So we've got 13 Chinese banks in the scope of our report, and the vast majority of the financing to coal power is coming from those banks. Unfortunately, um, it's not just those banks. We do see a handful of other banks, including, as you said, the State Bank of India, but also still having some exposure are some US banks, so JP Morgan Chase, Citi, And a couple of Japanese banks, including Mizuho, um, SMBC, MUFG. So those are the three big Japanese mega banks, also still putting some money into uh, coal power. Similarly, a handful of Canadian banks um, last year put some money into uh, coal mining. Yeah, far too many banks still with exposure to coal mining, um, given the urgency of the coal phase out. I mean, you mentioned coal miners. I think I would just add in there that one of the real issues, I think, with the continued financing of coal mining is that really every dollar that goes towards financing coal mining is a dollar that's not going to creating those really good jobs that I hope are right on the horizon in the clean energy and a more just people-centered energy system that really has the potential to create a lot of jobs and help pivot in a much more just way for the workers that are impacted by a phase out of fossil fuels. So there's a real opportunity here, I think, to have a just transition where it's not like we're just kicking people out of jobs, but really thinking about what the new jobs are going to be, asking our financial institutions to shift their financing priorities so that they're enabling that new economy and
2: those new jobs. And your groups found bank financing to fossil fuel companies did not go up in 2022. Is that not good news, a sign that these banks get the message they're living up to their green pledges?
0: So there's one bank where I think it's good news, and that's La Banque Postale, French bank that made a commitment in 2021 to stop financing fossil fuels. And as a result of that commitment, we saw zero financing from them in 2022. Our data set doesn't have any deals with fossil fuel companies uh, for 2022. For the rest of the banks, um, including those whose financing for fossil fuels decreased in 2022, It's very difficult for me to see that as the beginning of a long-term trend as much as it's probably, unfortunately, going to be an outlier. I don't see any evidence that it's a result of intentional policy decisions or changes in practices in those major banks. Instead, I think it's attributable to things that are going on out in the world. So, higher prices uh, for fossil fuels really drove up those profits, as you mentioned at the head of the show. Fossil fuel companies making really remarkable, outstanding levels of profit just didn't need to turn to banks for financing last year to the same degree that they have in the past. So that's certainly one factor is fossil fuel companies not borrowing as much. You know, other things like interest rates being slightly higher, the dollar being strong against other currencies, those certainly are factors as well, shaping the financing numbers. I just unfortunately don't think that bank policies uh, are robust enough to explain the decline in financing. And I think the fossil fuel industry is on the brink of expanding yet again, and so we're likely to see an increase in 2023. And according to data that was compiled by our partner organization, Oil Change International, it looks like the fossil fuel industry is gearing up for a big expansion in terms of the number of barrels, billions of barrels of oil equivalent that come to a final investment decision in 2024. So we're expecting really a surge um, in fossil fuel financing in the next couple of years unless something really changes uh, in bank policies, unless uh, government policy pushes banks to to tighten up their lending and, and financing activities. But this is just really such a crucial moment, as I'm sure you and your listeners know, for speeding up the transition away from fossil fuels.
2: Yeah, this is one sad part in a way. It's almost like we're not fighting to stop fossil fuels and to slash them. We have to cut fossil fuel emissions in half by 2030, according to the United Nations, or risk a, a dangerous climate. What we're fighting now is the mad expansion of fossil fuels to burn even more, to, even, to accelerate this whole awful process. Yeah, I mean, it's really just unconscionable
0: to be expanding at all. and There's no way that we can stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, which, of course, is the point at which we know that the impacts are going to become exponentially more difficult and more expensive, honestly, to adapt to. Every day <laughs> I look around and... I'm somewhat surprised at how many people don't perceive the emergency that I think we're really in. And that IPCC report that came out last month, I think, tells us that there still is a window of opportunity. We still have a chance, but we need to move fast. And if we do that, if we're able to stop the expansion of fossil fuels, if we're able to begin not only to stop the expansion but also phase down some of the existing assets, that we do still have a chance to stay within an amount of um, global heating that, that will keep the planet livable in the near future.
2: April Merlot, could you just list out the groups who are behind this banking on climate chaos report?
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to. This is, it's really quite a remarkable process. There are seven co-authoring organizations. So it's a big report, lots of work goes into making it. So Rainforest Action Network is the lead organization here. We also work really closely with the Indigenous Environmental Network, uh, with BankTrack, which is an NGO in Europe, Oil Change International, Reclaim Finance, Sierra Club, and Ergobald.
2: Yes, we had the founder of Ergewald on Radio EcoShock. It's a great German environmental organization. What are the members of this coalition asking the world to do?
0: So, we conclude the report with a recommendation specifically for banks, and those, I think based on our conversation, those recommendations aren't very difficult, really. So, the first one is prohibit all finance for fossil fuel expansion immediately. Banks really need to just stop. They need to draw a really clear line, and that needs to apply to companies, not just projects, all those loopholes I was talking about earlier need to be cut out of of those banking policies we've seen a lot in the last couple of years of banks talking about their emissions reduction targets um, and their net zero targets and i think on the one hand that's very hopeful on the other hand we see many of those targets lacking ambition and so we call on banks to adopt absolute financed emissions targets so really rigorous targets that are going to lead to a a reduction in the absolute emissions of their clients. We call on them to demand robust transition plans for all of their fossil fuel clients, including the existing ones, not just new ones. We call on them to protect the rights of indigenous peoples and human rights. Um, And we call on them to really dramatically scale up their financing for a just and fair transition. So not too many demands, but a lot goes into uh, making those realities We know these are really complex institutions that do a lot of work to keep the global economy moving, but also have the potential to really support some pretty harmful projects on the ground. And really, I think as customers of those institutions, we all have the right and the obligation to be asking those institutions to live up to the promise of keeping our planet livable.
2: Yes, recently a few banks in the United States collapsed. The government made the depositors whole to avoid a cascade of bank failures. It was shaky. And it turns out the troubles came when people came and companies came and withdrew their money. And it sounds like we little people may have more power than we know. But as you've said, it's pretty hard to find a clean option. Maybe credit unions or, or maybe a few banks will offer themselves as real alternatives. We can hope.
1: Yeah, I think
0: that's right. Um, I think credit unions certainly are are often a good option, and I do think there's a growing demand for banks that really have washed their hands of fossil fuels, and so hopefully that will be something that we can turn to. And also, hopefully, some of the big banks really will take seriously this obligation to be facilitating a rapid transition. On the bank failures, I would just say you know, one of the big issues that was going on there is short-sightedness about evaluating some of the risks that were on the horizon, and I know I mentioned this before, but I really do see one of the jobs that banks need to do in order to be viable and in order to be fulfilling their mission in our society is to be evaluating risks. So the banking crisis in the United States has, to me, more than anything, just reiterated that fact that uh, managing risks including the climate risk, should be really top of the agenda for these financial institutions.
2: Well, now that the 2023 report is out, what else are you working on for RAN?
0: Well, you know, um, there's so much work building this data set that I haven't quite had as much time as I would like to dig in and find all the patterns that there are. It's a huge data set, so I'm looking forward to playing around in the data set to identify what other trends might be going on that we had not picked up on yet. And I'll probably write a couple of other reports um, over the next couple of months. I'm certainly interested in writing a report about the loopholes that I was talking to you about, trying to understand a little bit more clearly how those loopholes are enabling banks to continue business as usual. Also, really interested to think about the relationship between bank policies and the financing they offer. So, our report incorporates some really great analysis of bank policies that's done by our partners at Reclaim Finance and bank track, Um, and so really looking forward to trying to figure out how to effectively assess the relationship between um, those bank policies and the actual financing banks are putting out.
2: Well, the report's easy to read, lots of good graphics. Where can our listeners uh, download it? Yeah, so
0: we've got a beautiful website called BankingOnClimateChaos.org, and you can explore the data. There's some data downloads. There's the full PDF of the report that you can download. It includes, in addition to the data and to the policy assessment, frontline stories, so stories from folks who are fighting really disastrous fossil fuel build-out around the world, including in liquefied natural gas in Africa and Asia and the United States, North America.
2: From the Rainforest Action Network, we've been speaking with Dr. April Merlot, Director of Research. Find more links and my notes to follow up in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Thank you for throwing light on this matter, April.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me.
2: I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Radio Ecoshock, bringing you voices that matter. I'm Alex. Thank you for listening again this week and caring about our world. Uh, you're on the air coast-to-coast AM with Art Bell. Hi.
0: Yes, Mr. Bell, uh, I'm going to give you an explanation of why the so-called global warming is occurring. Instead of just letting you
1: and all your liberal
0: listeners attack our glorious oil companies, our great American oil companies. Gl- glorious
1: you, oil companies?
0: Yes, they, are, they have done wonderful things for this country and have built us up into a wonderful powerhouse of economics. But don't try to get me off topic here. I'm going to tell you what is happening with global warming. Is because hell is becoming hotter, Mr. Bell, as more filthy souls are cast down into the center of the pit of hell. Yes. Stoking
2: the fires of hell, right?
0: boiling fires, the boiling pits
1: of sewage of hell are becoming hotter every day.
2: (laughs) It's leaking out and causing
1: global hellish warming. That's correct.
0: are listening to kboo portland 90.7 fm and kboo.fm online
1: support for between
0: the covers comes from kboo members and from rose city book pub located at 1329 northeast fremont in portland featuring meals drinks books and more information at rosecitybookpub.com
2: I'm Doug McVeigh, host of Free Culture Radio. Every month, we bring you 30 minutes of news and information about people who use drugs as we discuss topics like safe supply, safe consumption spaces, decriminalization, legalization, harm reduction, human rights, civil rights, and much more. Tune in and listen to Free Culture Radio on the third Wednesday of each month from 6.30 to 7 p.m. Pacific here on KBOO Community Radio, 90.7 FM.
1: Hi, this is Judy Collins, and you're listening to KBOO in Portland.